I am continuing in the series that Pastor Bill began in early part of August called Stop Playing Games. Stop Playing Games with Your Relationships is what we're looking at this morning. And so let's read these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And let's see what the Lord has to, to tell us about relationships. The Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. Lord, thank you that uh, even as we reflect back on what happened 21 years ago and, and the sorrow that still is in many of our hearts about that, those events. Father, we're thankful for how you showed up in the midst of that, as you always do. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that we need you today more than ever. Lord, thank you for being our strong tower that we can run to and find refuge and strength. And so, Lord, be with us today as we, as we tackle a challenging topic, something that is very important to every single one of us. Lord, help us to respond in a way that would be pleasing to you in a way that is possible because of the, the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Lord, if there's something in our hearts, something in our lives today that is not pleasing to you, perhaps we've been responding in an inappropriate way to the struggles that we face in this life. May you show us what is sin, that we may respond properly to it and get things right. Father, again, we love you. We ask your blessing now upon this time. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So stop playing games. It's been a series on stewardship that Pastor Bill started uh, over a month ago. We've looked at things like stop playing games with your life, stop playing games with your finances, and then Pastor Bill actually about a month ago preached a message on stop playing games with your relationships. And you may have recalled that message. He was in John chapter 1, and he was focus- focusing about redemptive relationships, how we have re- responsibility to uh, be actively involved in stewarding, caring for those relationships that God has put in, into our lives. So we, we looked at the example of, of uh, Philip finding Nathaniel and bringing him to Jesus and how Andrew brought uh, Simon Peter and brought him to Jesus. The whole idea of come and see. Come and see what Jesus is, who he is and what he's doing. And that was the focus of, of Bill's message about a, about a month ago. This morning, I want to focus on this idea of reconciling relationships. Stop playing games with the relationships, and let's focus on bringing reconciliation to our relationships. Now, I know I've used this illustration in the past. I always come back to it because it's made such an impression on me. But one of my favorite reality television cable shows is a show called Alone. Anybody familiar with Alone? Watch that show. It's one of my favorites. The premise of the show is they take 10 people who are amazing survivalists, and they drop them off in some remote, harsh, inhospitable area of the world, and all you have to do to win the game is to survive the longest. You have to find your own food, you have to build your own shelter, you have to find water, you have to make fire, you have to do all of these sort of things. You have to avoid the animals that want to survive on you, and there's usually bears or wolves or some other you know, aggressive animal that's maybe above us in the food chain, so to speak. And, um, 
And you have to do this all alone. There's ten people, but they put them in pretty distant areas from each other. So you are all alone, completely alone. No one else there to help you. And whoever lasts the longest wins half a million dollars. So there's some incentive, there's some motivation to do this. And typically those that have won this in the past have survived 75 to 100 days or so before they were the last, last one standing, so to speak. But the thing that has always intrigued me is those that end up not winning, those that exit the game, typically don't exit because they're not excellent survivalists. In fact, many of them, for the most part, thrive as being alone as a survivalist. Their biggest challenge is finding food, and many of them usually lose a good bit of weight. But what causes most of them to exit the game is they can't stand being alone any longer. They think of their families, their loved ones, the relationships that they hold so dear, and maybe that they realize for all these times out in in this wilderness area that they've taken for granted, and they long to be back home. They long to be with their loved ones. And uh, when you think about it, God created us to be in community. He didn't create create us to be alone. In fact, Genesis 2.18 says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. So community speaks of relationships. And relationships are hard. Can I get an amen? <laughs> relationships are difficult. They're challenging. I wish I was the poster child for what good stewardships, good stewardship of relationships should look like. But I know there are times when I personally have fallen woefully short of what God intended in relationships. There are, there are times when I have been too withdrawn from a relationship because I got upset, got my feelings hurt. There are times when I've gotten silent when I shouldn't have. There are times when I become cold or aloof or indifferent when I should have been engaging. There are even times when I've been harsh, unkind, belittling, spoke words that I know I shouldn't have ever spoken when I should have been encouraging and edifying. Now, can any of you all relate to this? Am I the, am I, I the only one that's kind of out there knowing at times I've responded in a way that's not proper, in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have to admit that there are times when we do fall woefully short of what God intended, what his standard should be for relationships. So this morning, I want to look at a fresh and a new what we need to do to be good stewards of the relationships that God has placed us in. How we can reconcile relationships that perhaps are damaged in some way. And so as we find ourselves here in Ephesians chapter 4, I want to just take a brief moment to remind us of uh, Paul's methodology that, that appears in a good bit of his writing. And we see this very clearly in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians. First off, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul presents doctrine. He presents very important doctrine for us. And then these uh, chapters 4 through 6 becomes a much more practical application of that doctrine. Uh, Based on 
what we know to be true based on what Paul has written to the, the church at Ephesus, how are we to live that out as believers? How are we to live these truths out that make a difference in our relationships, in the world that we find ourselves in and trying to reach others? So how are we supposed to live these things out in our daily lives? So these first three chapters of Ephesians speak of our great blessings we have in Christ, of our position in Christ, of our identity in Christ. And so I just wanted to briefly review a few of these so we have understand the context of, of how Paul is delivering these first few words of Ephesians chapter 4, which is the transition chapter between doctrine and application. So first off, we see back in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So we see, again, doctrinally and positionally, we have been blessed in Christ. And it says, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Again, that speaks of the great blessing, the great truth that we can stand on by faith today of who we are in Christ. We also see in verse 4, it says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Praise the Lord, he has chosen us, the word of God says before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We also see in verse 5, having predestined us to be uh, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we see that we've been predestined to the adoption of his children by Christ himself. Again, hopefully you read these things and, and, and you begin to see and understand just who we are in Christ and how valuable we are to him, how much he loved us and all that he's done for us. And these first three chapters just continue to go over and over these great truths. Verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So in the beloved, we have glorious grace, according to this verse 6, and he's made us accepted of the beloved. Verse 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. If there's ever a verse worthy of shouting amen to, that's one of them right there. It says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Uh, again, what a, what a great truth we have there that changes us as believers. And then we see, in, again, in verse 7 and verse 8, it says, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So Christ has exhibited rich, abounding lavish grace upon us. We are the benefactors of all of that. God has bestowed all of these things on us. And what a great, glorious series of of statements of truth that is for us this morning that talk about how valuable we are to Christ, the position that we have, the identity that we have as believers, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, chosen, predestined, all of these glorious things. And so hopefully this summary here in these first few verses of chapter 1 will cause you to be in awe of the amazing grace that God has poured out upon us. We did not earn this treatment. We don't deserve it. We can never be good enough, yet he pours it out upon us and so much more on us, his people. You've heard me say many times before that the gospel changes us. Because we have the spirit of the living God of the universe permanently residing in us as believers, we can live the Christian life. The things that we'll look at this morning, beginning in chapter 4, we can live these things out because the spirit of God resides in us, enabling us, empowering us, equipping us to live this way. 
Because we've been forgiven, we can forgive. Because we've been extended grace, we can extend grace. Because we've been given mercy of God, we can give mercy to others. Because the God has reconciled us to himself. In spite of all that we've done, we can reconcile with others as well. In fact, not only can we do these things, we should do these things. And we're able to do these things, again, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Christians, and said this in Sunday school today, Christians should be the most gracious, merciful, forgiving, and reconciling people in all the world. Amen? You believe that? So are you? Look inward this morning. This is a message for us to challenge ourselves. Does that describe me? Am I the most gracious, merciful, forgiving, reconciling person that I can be, that God expects me to be? Do those words describe the relationships that you find yourself in this morning? Let's expand briefly on this idea of reconciliation. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and let's look at a, a couple of verses here that explain this ministry of reconciliation that has been given to us as believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Christ Jesus, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And praise the Lord for again for the, the, the great truths that are found in those few verses that we read here. So the doctrine of reconcilia- reconciliation is the truth that God has taken the initiative. God has taken the initiative in Christ to restore fallen humanity back to himself, our creator. And so there are a couple important truths I just wanted to draw here as we prepare to look at our response to reconciling relationships. Number one is God took the initiative to reconcile sinners to himself. God took the initiative to reconcile sinners to himself. God was so concerned about the broken relationship with his creation, which is us, that he took the initiative. God moved toward us. Again, this is important when you talk about, I want to reconcile relationships that are in my life. God moved toward us. That's very instructive for us. It's very easy when relationships get tense and difficult to allow the tension to just be there and try to live with it, or as I referenced my occasional improper response is to withdraw from it, to move away from it, to hope things will get better, uh, to give up on it. Aren't you glad God didn't give up on us? God didn't give up on you? And no, he moved toward us. God took the initiative. It's important for us to grab a hold of that concept. Secondly, reconciliation came at great personal sacrifice. Reconciliation came at great personal sacrifice. God the Father gave his best. Amen? God the Father gave his best. He gave his son. And both the Father and the Son, as Christ was given, experienced great personal loss to restore relationship with us that was broken due to our sin. And so the same principle will hold true for us as well. 
we show the value of relationships that we find ourselves in by what you're willing to sacrifice for it. We show the value of those relationships by what we're willing to sacrifice for it. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, well, I'm glad you came today. That really is the most important reason for us to get up and open the word of God today is to share the truth of what Jesus Christ did. We've already read about it in numerous places already, how that the one who was without sin shed his blood to make it possible for us to be reconciled back to him. But since God moved toward you, a sinner, moved toward me, a sinner, the, the crucial question is, will you move toward him? He invites you to believe the message of his son being the savior of the world by admitting that you have been a rebel against his purpose, against his cause. And before you go on thinking this message only applies to conflict, resolution, reconciling relationships, why don't you stop and acknowledge that you simply need to take Jesus at his word and trust Jesus Christ as your savior? Humble yourself before him, admitting your sin. Acknowledge, Lord, you're right, I am a sinner. And thanking him that he died on a cross to pay your sin debt by shedding his blood, dying, being buried in that tomb, and being raised again in newness of life so that you may have new life, so that I would have new life. We'll turn back to Ephesians 4. Let's break this passage down in some more detail. So I said chapter 4 begins a transition from the doctrinal truths that Paul was building that foundation to chapter 4 beginning, okay, how do we, in light of that, how do we live this out? How do we live out the Christian life in a way that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord? How can we do these things that God calls us to? And so again, those three verses for this cause, verse 1, chapter, uh, chapter 4, uh, there, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I want to break down these words here that we see beginning in, in uh, verse 2, because these, these words speak of how we reconcile relationships, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul begins this transitionary chapter with a list of good works. And if I were to ask any of us in here to say, what are some good works that, that Christians can be involved with? I would probably get things back like, well, teach a Sunday school class. Work in the nursery. That's a really good work, right? That's needed. That's difficult. That's challenging. Uh, go door to door. Pass out literature. Um, Disciple someone, one-on-one. Give to missions, give to the cause of Christ. Those are all excellent things, and I'm not trying to downplay any of those, but when Paul begins with a list of good works here in chapter 4, that's not what he goes to. He talks about things like lowliness and meekness. And so you hear these words, and maybe, like me, you've been tempted to say in the past, well, that's just, those words don't describe me. That's just, that's not my personality. I mean, I have a personality where I just, I call it as I see it. And yeah, sometimes that may come across harsh and unkind 
and unloving, but that's just the way I am. I would challenge you, if that's your way of thinking this morning, that uh, that is not a biblical approach to what the Word of God says. Uh, You're buying into the idea that your personality or that the way that you are is unchangeable. And if we buy into that idea, then we ought to set the entire doctrine of progressive sanctification aside. And progressive sanctification is the, the doctrine that explains how the Lord works in us and through us to mold us into the image of his son. The old man is put away and the new man is put on. And so, yes, praise the Lord, we don't all have the same personality. Praise the Lord, he, he created us differently. But that does not mean that we cannot change. Change is necessary, and change is possible through the the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. So again, don't allow yourself to to come to that place where you say, that's just the way I am, and they're just going to have to learn to live with me and deal with me because I'm not going to change. Again, you've heard me say over and over again because I really believe this. I am not yet like Jesus Christ. Is anyone in this room like Jesus Christ yet? No. So by that very statement, we acknowledge that we need to change that we've not arrived, that we haven't grown enough yet, that we have to keep changing. So we have that attitude and the idea, Lord, keep changing me, keep molding me into the image of your son. And so we keep going going to him, expecting him to do that. So let's look at each of these good works that are spelled out here in Ephesians 4, what they look like, as well as what their opposites look like. And uh, this is how, as believers... We should be living out the gospel, these great truths that we learn in these first three chapters. This is how we become ministers of reconciliation and relationships. So the first one we see here in verse 2, with all lowliness. So this is a Christ-like character trait, lowliness. It speaks of humility, lowliness of mind, being humble, humble humble-minded, thinking of yourself in proper relationship to others. Well, why should that be? Well, how did Jesus look at himself in relationship to others? He saw himself as a servant, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. How should we look at ourselves in proper relationship to God? That we are fully submitted to him, that he is our master, that uh, we are subject to him, that our lives are submitted to his will, as Christ did to his father. I can of my own self do nothing, Jesus said. I came not to do my will, but the will of the father that sent me. So a Christ-like characteristic is lowliness. It's humility. What is the opposite of that? Pride. Pride is the opposite of lowliness. It's the opposite of humility. It's being high-minded, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. When pride is present in a relationship, there is always tension. We know it. We're familiar with that. We've experienced that. A person stubbornly refuses to admit that he or she is wrong. In fact, we dig our heels in, not willing to change our opinion or our belief or our position on a matter that needs to be changed. They become the person who has to have the last word, a person who isn't really concentrating on what the other person is saying in the midst of a conversation, but just waiting for them to finish so they can get on to say what they really need to say, which is the most important thing to them. Pride escalates conflict. It makes the problem worse. Our humble Savior helps us learn how to die to self and think of others as more important 
than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2. Turn forward to that real quick. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible. Convicting verse. Challenging verse. Verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. If you really regard the person that you're feeling tension with as more important than yourself, what happens to your rights? Well, I have the right to defend myself. He doesn't have the right to speak to me that way. Or are you willing to die to yourself and to your rights? And I know people may misinterpret this and say, well, you just expect me to be a doormat and for them to walk all over me. No, I'm saying, Lord, help me to be lowly. Help me to be humble like you were. Help me to fight off this Uh, this idea of pride that's just the opposite of that, where I want my way, and I'm going to fight to get my way, and I'm going to stand for my rights. Again, aren't you glad that Jesus Christ, who was sinless, who lived the perfect life, did not operate that way? He willingly set that all aside to reconcile us, sinners, to himself. So, As you think of the good work of lowliness, of humility, does that describe you in the midst of your relationships, especially those that you care the most about, or does the opposite describe you? Pride, full of self, what you want. That's an un-Christ-like character trait. We need God's help and deliverance there if we want to reconcile relationships. Ephesians 4, verse 2, the next word is meekness. Speaks of gentleness. Strength under control, I think, is probably the best definition I've ever heard of that simple word, meekness. Jesus used used meekness to describe himself. Matthew 11, 29, he says, For I am meek and lowly of heart. Jesus' strength under control was probably never better on display, more evident than when he endured all that he went through on the cross for us. When he suffered for our sin, he could have called legions of angels to rescue him and remove him from that cross, yet he didn't. His meekness allowed him to endure. Strength under control. What's the opposite? Harshness. The opposite of being meek or gentle is being harsh. When we're harsh toward others that we're in a relationship with, Oftentimes the other person will withdraw or even maybe respond with even greater harshness. Not going to treat me that way. You're not going to say that. I'm going to get what I'm going to say back in. And so it just becomes a never-ending downward cycle, spiral out of control. That type of fleshly response, and it is a fleshly response, and what I'm talking about here obviously is If you see the parallel as a spirit-filled response versus a fleshly response, uh, the parallel for many of what what, uh, uh, Paul is covering here in Ephesians chapter 4 is also found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, when he talks about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are characteristics, fruit, that every one of us who name the name of Christ can demonstrate 
because of the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us and the fact that we've been changed because of the gospel. But oftentimes a fleshly response like that is, is a problem that men have. It seems that many men are too harsh with their wives, with their children. God gave us deeper, oftentimes booming voices, and it's easier for us to use those improperly. The Lord doesn't desire us to be, you know, big Mr. Tough Guy with our families. Christ died on the cross to free us from that type of behavior. Living for ourselves, wanting things our way, any old way that we want to. No, we are to be meek, gentle, to exhibit strength under control. Again, I ask you, which of these describes you when things get tense in your relationships? Meekness or harshness? Again, may the Holy Spirit do his work in each of our hearts and lives this morning. Back in Ephesians 4, verse 2, again, now it says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering. Patience includes the idea of being able to stay away from anger. Again, conflict and tension can cause us to be angry. Someone who is long-suffering, enabled by the Spirit of God, enables us to stay away from anger, far away from it, realizing it's, it's probably going to make the situation worse as opposed to better. The obvious opposite of long-suffering is impatience. Impatience presents many challenges to our relationships. An impatient person will not be a good listener. It's important to be a good listener in our relationships. They don't really have time to hear what the other person is saying. Again, oftentimes they're rethinking their response. They're crafting what they're going to say in response to what has already been said or what they feel about the situation, and they're not really listening. So the question is, why are you impatient? If you're impatient, why? What's really going on inside of you? What's going on in your thinking and your emotions, your motivation? Because that reveals, those, those things there reveal what's going on in our hearts. And for the Lord to really change us from the inside out, we cannot go on believing the lies of the world that says it's just genetics. That's just the way I am. That's just my personality, and they're just going to have to learn to deal with that. No, God can change us. He desires to change us. We need to change And we need to be open and submissive to the Lord, changing those things in our lives. So which describes you again? Long-suffering or impatient? Again, God can help you, he can help me respond as a mature believer in all of our relationships in these areas. Well, let's go back. Ephesians 4, latter part of chapter 2, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing one another in love. Forbearing speaks of showing tolerance in love. It means putting on a heart of compassion to feel pity and deep sympathy within our inner person. Jesus demonstrated this in Matthew chapter 9 as he looked upon all the multitudes. The Bible says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Forbearing one another in love embodies the idea of showing kindness, being generous to others for their good. So what's the opposite? If you're not forbearing in your relationships, you are intolerant. Intolerant demonstrates a lack of grace toward others. 
Do you get your feelings easily hurt? Do you have big toes? Meaning it's easy for your toes to be stepped on. You know, the more we mature and grow as believers, the more gracious we ought to become. Amen? Amen. Again, the more we grow as believers, the more gracious we ought to become. It's a simple statement, but it's also a very important statement for us to spend some time thinking about. Does that describe me? Am I becoming more gracious? Am I becoming more forbearing? Am I becoming more uh, lowly? Am I becoming more meek? Again, these things, we should constantly see a growth pattern in believers that are so caught up in wanting to respond in a way that pleases the Lord and respond in a way that we're enabled to because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It should be harder to offend a mature Christian. Are you easily offended? Someone sat in my pew today. There wasn't coffee creamer out there. I couldn't find a cup. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's raining. should be sun shining today. I mean, are you easily offended? If little things like that bother you, that should be a red flag. That something in my heart is not right that needs to change. And the beginning part of that is acknowledging, Lord, you're right. This should not bother me. I want to be someone who is gracious and merciful and kind and loving and forgiving and forbearing and meek and lowly and humble. Someone who is intolerant becomes hard-hearted versus someone who's moved with compassion as Christ was. Unfeeling attitude toward others. When was the last time you truly felt deeply for the hurt that someone was going through? That's convicting. Why are you not, why are you not more soft-hearted? Why are you aloof? Again, I acknowledge I've been guilty of these things. Romans 12, 15, we're challenged to rejoice with them that do rejoice and to weep with them that weep. What keeps you from weeping this morning? Embarrassed? Again, we see the perfect example of our Savior who often was moved with compassion and moved to tears. The Lord wants us to teach us to be more tenderhearted. What keeps you from being kind? Again, someone who is forbearing one another in love demonstrates kindness, demonstrates compassion, demonstrates pity by weeping with those that weep, by doing kind things to those that need to be reached with the glorious gospel message, to a hurting believer. The last thing here we see back in 4, verse 3, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Believers should be unified. Our church should be unified. That word endeavoring speaks of commitment. It speaks of being diligent, endeavoring to keep the unity. As we grow in these characteristics, we are literally becoming more godly and more Christ-like and more enabled to live out these things. The one who is not endeavoring lacks commitment. Demonstrated by a willingness to allow relationships to wither. Are you guilty of that? Are there some relationships that you've just given up on? That you've walked away from? That you said, this is just not worth it anymore? 
uh, they're going to have to do their part before I'm going to do my part. A lack of commitment demonstrates a willingness to allow relationships to wither. Relationships are hard. I said that from the very beginning. They are difficult. Don't give up. My challenge is don't give up. If you're tempted to give up, ask yourself, where would I be if the Lord had given up on me? If he had that attitude towards me, his relationship with me, God, praise the Lord, has not given up. and He doesn't give up. Are your relationships important enough that you're willing to keep working through them? All the issues that are so challenging so you can achieve reconciliation. Again, when we look back at that definition of that word just a few moments ago, Christ moved toward us. Are you willing to move, move toward that one maybe that you've given up on? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to reconcile a relationship? Again, the value that we have in a relationship is demonstrated by what we're willing to sacrifice. Some of our rights, some of our comforts, Again, think of what the Lord did for you and for me. So how are you doing these, in these areas? Perhaps you find yourself a bit discouraged this morning. If you have to truthfully admit that you're struggling to practice some of the godly character traits found in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Perhaps you can more clearly see how the opposites of these character traits, these godly character traits, are have invaded your thinking, perhaps even your actions. All those have contributed to the tension and the difficulties that you're dealing with. If that's the the case this morning, can I remind you that there is hope? Amen. There is hope. There is hope in the gospel. The hope is in the simple, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has embedded into it the power to change people, the power to change us, the power to heal the brokenhearted. In fact, that's one of the things Jesus said in his opening dialogue, that he's come to heal the brokenhearted. So friends, please submit yourself to doing things his way. Even if it's painful to admit your part, how that you can see firsthand how you've maybe contributed to some of these problems that exist in relationships. But allow yourself to say, Lord, I submit myself to your spirit, and to your control, and to doing things your way. I acknowledge when I go back and maybe even later today read these first three chapters of Ephesians. It's more important than the Browns game, right? And be reminded of, yes, these are true. These are things that I can live out because of the power of of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me. I can, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. His purposes can be accomplished in your life and my life as our great God works to conform us to the glorious image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your head. Every head bowed, every eye closed. For those of you that are here that may be a may have never been reconciled to Jesus Christ, do not have a personal relationship with him, do not know him as Savior, 
Can I remind you of what I shared with you earlier? Since God moved toward you, and he did, came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life, went to the cross of Calvary, shed his blood to pay your sin debt as well as mine, died on the cross, was put in a grave, but was raised again to life three days later. That's the gospel message. And he did that because he loved you and he loved me. And he wanted to be reconciled back to you. And so he invites you today to move toward him. He's already moved toward you. How you respond. Will you believe the message that I've shared this morning? A savior coming to save you, to forgive you from your sins, and to give you new life in Christ? Would you acknowledge your need to God for Jesus to be your Savior. Humble yourself before him, admitting your sin, thanking him that he died to pay the penalty of your sin on the cross. Maybe if you've never been born again, maybe you've never been reconciled to the Lord, would you give me the privilege of praying for you this morning? Say, Brother Steve, I've never done that. I've never asked the Lord to save me. I've never asked him to forgive me of my sin. I've been trying to figure this out all on my own, trying to be good. But I acknowledge that I'm not, that I can't do this. Would you give me the privilege of praying for you? I won't draw attention to you. I won't call you out. I'll just simply acknowledge your hand and pray for you. If you're like that this morning, would you raise your hand? Say, please pray for me, Brother Steve. I need to be reconciled to God. Believer, how are you doing as a steward of your relationships? Is your life and your relationships characterized by loneliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing and love, endeavoring? Or have you been doing the opposite of that? Harsh, impatient, critical, unloving, uncommitted, that's you this morning first ask God for forgiveness those things are sin Jeremy brothers and sisters those things are sin they slow down that change process that the Lord is working in us to make us more like Christ because we're allowing a sinful response to destroy what God came to save and so acknowledge your sin confess it Repent of it. Ask the Lord to forgive you. And take him at his word when he says he promises to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there a relationship that the Lord has put his finger on in your heart, in your life today that needs to be reconciled? Maybe you've been taking the passive approach. I'm waiting for them to come to me. And maybe the Spirit is saying, I came to you. It's time for you to move toward them. Lord, whatever you're doing this morning in the heart of everyone that's here, may your will be accomplished. May you do those things, cause us, enable us, empower us to do those things that are pleasing to you. And Father, we'll trust you. Father, we want to please you with our lives. We acknowledge, especially in light of everything that you show us in the first three chapters of Ephesians, chosen, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, predestined, all these things, Lord, that you've done for us. Because of these things, we can live Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 out in our relationships. Lord, live through us, speak through us, minister through us. 
change us into what it is you want to accomplish this morning. Father, we love you. We ask your blessing on this time of invitation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to rise to your feet. As Pastor Bill often says, our church, we have a time of invitation for you to respond for however